Okay, for today, holiness of God, part two, but as the holiness of God relates to man, to us. Let me get set up here. But let me begin in prayer one more time before we approach this powerful study. Almighty Father, thank you. Thank you so much for, in your mercy and your goodness today, to allow us and grant us the opportunity to gather together. Father, to be with you, to open your word, to receive from you, to peer again, Father, into your holiness. And now today, to understand, Lord, I pray in deeper measures and ways, our call to holiness as received from you and enabled by you. Father, give us understanding, Lord, we ask, and and the illumination that we need by the Holy Spirit to examine us by your word. Father, for our desire, our delight is, is in your law, Father, in its counsels, in its truths, in its revelation of you. So, Father, stir our hearts more, even more this day to grow in love for you and toward one another. And may our hearts be enlarged in faith in you and all the work that you have accomplished on our behalf. And we ask this in the name and because of Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week, we looked at several aspects of God's holiness, and I put those up there for you just in outline form. I'm not going to go into those in detail, but... We looked at the holiness of God as defined by Scripture. Remember the the Hebrew words, kodesh and kodash, that meant separated, sanctified, holy, and also hagiadzo in in the Greek, also meaning separate, holy. And even though our words are are so insufficient in in fully describing God's holiness, we, we must, we need to consider God's holiness, for as we said last week, it is the most sparkling jewel in his eternal and glorious crown. It's the most glorious name by which God is known. And his holiness, God's holiness, belongs to a different order of things. And it does mean, as we said, by definition of the word used in Scripture, that God is completely separate from sin. But it also, the holiness of God means his, his wholeness. It is his godness. It is his being God and all that it means for him to be God. He speaks in holiness. All he thinks and does are in holiness. It is the full essence of his being in all his word and his works. And we need to also understand, I hope we picked up last week, that God's majestic and ethical holiness is and should be a very great comfort to us, a very great assurance to us, because we can have confidence in that all of his ways, all of his actions are not only perfect, they are not only just and holy, but they are always good to us. Even when circumstances appear otherwise, even when we are in the midst of trial, of correction, of of discipline by the Lord, 
we can rest that those things are for our good and his glory. They are for transforming our hearts. The last time we looked at Exodus 15.11 was our main scripture to just to introduce us powerfully to the majestic holiness of God. He says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And today we're going to begin with, if you will, turn to Leviticus 11.44. This is God's speaking to our holiness, his call to holiness. Would someone like to read that? Leviticus 11.44. Got it? Greg, go. Amen. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate, sanctify, set yourselves apart unto me, for I am holy. And when we think about holiness and our remaining sin, when you think of it, when it specifically applies to you and and to the church, what comes to mind? A list of rules of do's and don'ts? a specific clothing or an appearance that we must have, prohibitions? Do we think it is some unattainable perfection that that will foster either some delusion or discouragement about our sin? Any, Any amens on that? Yeah. To some degree, these, these ideas are accurate, but... Holiness for us is to also be consecrated. It is to be set apart from sin, just as God is set apart from sin, and to be separated to God in salvation and in putting it to death each day, and to live as those who are separated to him, who are associated to him, who are bought by him, who are in communion with him. For us as the creature to meet God in his holiness is really to be altogether overwhelmed by the discovery that he is God and not man. What, what, a, what a comfort and strength that is. We love each other. We would lay down our lives for one another. But we still have deceitful hearts. We're going to fail one another. God will never do that. Okay? But why do so many feel they're defeated in their struggles against sin? and their walk in holiness. Why do we see around us today the church is more and more conformed to the world and its ways and methods and thinking than to be separate unto God? And I want to look at three very reasonable possibilities. The first is, how serious do we see sin? Do we take it as serious as God does? Do we tend to maybe categorize sin in different compartments? Maybe what's acceptable, what's really not tolerated, you know. Solomon says it's the little foxes that come in and ruin and destroy the vineyard, right? Do we call sin, sin, whether it's grotesque in its scope or even seemingly insignificant because God's holy law forbids all of it. 
There are no categories of sin. And we must see any sin, any sin, as an affront and an offense against a thrice holy God. David confesses this in his prayer in Psalm 51.4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that when you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Sin will feed on our false sense of strength and attempt to isolate us in pride. Sound familiar? When we think we're strong, we lack that saving sobriety and that need for God. Sin is very seductive and devious. It assures us that you're really wiser and and safer than you think you are. Even when we indulge in temptation or tempting explorations, it lies to us that we can, we can keep it under control. It opens the door just enough for presumption and callousness to creep in. Sin will wear a beautiful disguise as Satan discloses himself as an angel of light. And its power is in the presentation of that false beauty to us, is it not? It says, there's really safety in a lie. You can find some enjoyment in stolen treasures and pleasures. That there's, there's affirmation in, in, even in sexual immorality. What should be our attitude? Anyone? Amen. Amen. What does that say? kill it but let me ask you this that's true brother we're going to get to that scripture actually but that you're right on we're to mortify it are we more concerned about our victory over sin rather than how it grieves god's heart and our disobedience to him are we so and I, i confess this man writing this up was very convicting to me are we so success oriented that we don't tolerate any failure in our struggle against sin. Rather than clearly clearly seeing it's offense toward God, God wants us to obey and be holy. This is Godward, okay? If we are focused just on victory, we're focused on ourselves. But any victory we experience over sin will be the direct result of obedience toward a holy God to his holy word, in submission to his Holy Spirit. And with that comes great joy. Amen? The satisfaction that Christ had in pleasing his Father. We we didn't get to see that, experience that face to face, but everything he did was always to please his Father. He found such joy in that, even to bear the shame of the cross. How could we think we should be any different in that? We will share in obeying the same Father and the same commands. But what did Pharaoh, Balaam, and King Saul do when they were confronted? What was their response? It it wasn't too in-depth or dramatic. I sinned. I, 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 I sinned. That was about it. 
But what did the prodigal do in Luke 15? Against you and I, only you, Father, have I sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be a son to you, to be called your son. That is where humility and repentance and obedience to God's, the reality of who God is and his holiness and the desire to please him and obey his commands comes, comes from. Ours must be an attitude and hatred for sin, just as Joseph said in Genesis 39. How could I do this? How could I sin and do such a wicked thing against God? Not matter about what others thought about, but against God. No matter what the temptation is, no matter what the opportunity it may be, reasoned in our own mind that might benefit ourselves, if it is an affront and a sin against God, what do we choose? What is our attitude toward it? God's attitude toward sin is an impartial judge. 1 Peter 1.17, he hates both the sin in the saint and the sinner, right? There's no differentiation. And we see in the Word, there's a great indication in the Word of God in many scriptures that God may judge the sins of his people more severely than those of the world. One example, turn over with me to 2 Samuel 12. We saw this in David's life very clearly as a result of his disobedience to God. 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. Somebody read that for me, please. Got it? Go for it. Yes. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David's despising of God's holiness, his decrees to him, the promises that he had received from God, the sword will never depart from his house after his sin. And we saw how that worked out through Absalom, his son, the kingdom, what had happened to him, how he was severely disciplined and humbled. Yes? The sword in his house? Yeah. yeah. It, oh, yeah. Yeah. David is going to be uh, directly impacted by it. No longer sending his armies out, but in his own house is going to be the violence and the warfare going on. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yep. And that was the judgment. You know, when the act the act of you know having that infighting in his own house was the the judgment towards God. Right. Another problem here, if you can read this, sorry it's so small, is that we don't think that there's any effort necessary in holiness. I'm not singling this church out but there's, there's the thought that holiness doesn't require any effort on our part. It's only by faith. Scripture says that be being holy, laying aside, mortifying, casting off. These are all verbs. These are all imperatives. These are all commands that require action on our part. This, this is the synergistic aspect of our sanctification. 
of our continuing salvation, which we'll get to in a little bit. J.C. Ryle, and, and if any of you haven't read his book on holiness, highly recommend it if you add it to your list. Um, I'm making my way through it again, and wow. He asked this question, Is it wise to proclaim in so bald, naked, and unqualified a way as many do that holiness of converted people is by faith only and not at all by personal exertion? Is it according to the proportion of God's word? I doubt it. Because faith without what? Is dead. It's lifeless. Not just good deeds, but specifically works that bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that ongoing lifestyle of having a contrite, broken heart before God, of repenting and turning from sin toward our holy God. And of course, let me clarify this, let me get this statement in here. For any Christian to pursue holiness in our lives requires a personal exertion only founded upon faith in Christ alone and his power. Okay, that's the basis. That's what we're going to see as our our starting point. But all believers must realize we have a personal both responsibility and accountability for our walk and holiness in Christ under his sufficient power, under the authority and, and working of his word, by the very power of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us, Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. Meditate on those. That power is available to us to walk holy before God. So I want to jump back. Any questions so far? Exactly, yeah. Psalm 1. I mean, we went through, pastor preached on that. We went through that study. Yeah, I mean, all the outward manifestations of sin are what? Walking, standing, sitting. But the one who delights in God from his heart and his word, there is his joy. There, there is his desire to please the Father. There is a, is a pursuit of walking in holiness. That's our, that's our, only, that's our only means. Amen. Yep. Fear and trembling. Yeah. Amen. There's over 600 verses in Scripture talking about aspects of holiness, and they all relate to where is our heart in the matter before God and His holiness. So, yeah. It's, it's throughout Scripture. We can't ignore it. If you remember last week, we spent some time in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah's vision. And who did he see? The Lord Jesus Christ in glory. His temple filled, or his, his, his robe filled the temple. And we saw in Isaiah's reaction and his response to, to the Lord's majestic holiness was what? His utter unworthiness, right? His terror. His, his insignificance. He couldn't even stand in the presence of the Lord. And what it revealed to him was a consciousness of his own sin. 
And remember, Isaiah has already been a, a prophet, a pastor, if you will, to Israel, proclaiming, warning the children, a believer. And here, still later in his walk, this encounter of holiness to realize his unworthiness, his insignificance, the consciousness of his sin and the extents of that sin in himself before holy God. So I want to keep keep that passage in mind because I want to use that as, as this biographical parallel from Isaiah in conjunction with Romans, the first three chapters that, that Paul gives us kind of a, a courtroom setting showing us man's guilt before God. And we, we have to start back with this presupposition. We, we, we are reminded to look back and remember what, what does Christ say to the church in Ephesus? Remember from where you have fallen. Remember what you came from. That all are depraved. Every aspect of our being was corrupted with sin. And so that we can better understand our call from God and our need to be holy before him. Because Paul says that anyone who stands before the judgment seat is what? Their mouth is shut. They have no self-righteousness. Their proud pride is silenced. And they choke on their own words. So first, let's look at the condition of man before God. I'm going to go through this a little bit quick because I want to get to the, the beefy part in item five. I know you're familiar with this, but I, I, want to, I want to refresh this and stir us up in this. Ephesians 2. You know this very well, the first three verses. What were we? Dead. And what? And what? And how did we walk? Who who are we captive to? Amen. Satan, all of his realm. And sin has that extensive power to infiltrate every aspect of our being. And we were brought into this according to what? What does David say in Psalm 51.5? We were, conce- we were conceived in sin. We, we had no choice in the matter from our federal head. Pardon? Right, right. All, in, all inherited from our federal head. And in this, there's no rescue for any sinner apart from God. Apart from his invaluable call, his grace, his mercy, through the salvific word of, work of Christ, Back in Ephesians 2, this is not of ourselves. This is not something we can do for ourselves. We can't even conjure up a salvific plan if we tried for all of our life. And this is the reality of what happened to Isaiah. All he could do is confess before God his sinfulness. Woe is me, I am undone. And I was looking at that further, just, just his statement of being ruined, of being undone. Um, I'm a pseudo-wannabe car repair guy. <laughs> but I had the opportunity once of doing a what they call a full restoration on a car. And this to me was like God's glory permeating truth, his light. When you do a full restoration, you go down to every nut, bolt, crevice, cranny, every aspect of the metal, clean it, fix it, weld it, purify it, you're restoring it to its original intent. And this is what God's desire is, that 
we're not fully human. We're not the way God wants us to be yet, right? Only in salvation and through the grace of Christ will we be human as we should be. But we need this examining power of the light and the work and the Spirit of God. This is what Isaiah was going through. Before the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-examining Father of glory, the Lord of glory, woe is me, for I am undone. And the reality of this sin presence continues with us today, does it not? Galatians 5.17, we are at war, the Spirit is at war, sin is still at war. Romans 7.21, Paul says, I still find that principle that evil is present with me. The law of the sin of the flesh remains with us until we die or until we're taken into glory. But it is for those who are humble, who are contrite in spirit, who tremble before God and his word. Those are the ones that God does what to? He listens to. He esteems. He hears them. So that covers our condition. Now, as we know, the command to man from God. Mark one fifteen. what were the first commands Christ ushered forth into the world? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of holiness, of glory, of righteousness, of power, of salvation, of sanctification is at hand. Repent and believe. This is God's command to us. And Peter in Acts 3, the same thing. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that in our fellowship, the times of refreshment, of joy may return to your soul that you may know what it is to be truly alive. And this is not an insignificant work accomplished by God through Christ on our behalf. We can't forget the glorious work on the cross, the utmost of power, the utmost of purpose in the heart of God for on our behalf. The command is given to all, but the gift is only imparted to his own. How precious is that gift that's been given to us? And in this command, we see that God provided and displayed not only the means of salvation, but as we're going to see, the means of continuing in that salvation, of that sanctification, of that being separated unto him. Isaiah saw the fullness of his exalted glory. And for Christ now to see him as cloaked in our sinful unrighteousness and to be forsaken by his only father, his holy father, whom he desired to please and to do his will, and then for him to impart to us what what has Christ imputed and imparted to us, his righteousness, which introduces us into his holiness, right? Colossians 1, 13 and 14, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us from Satan's kingdom into his kingdom. New citizenship, new ownership, new power, new life. The old has passed away. And in him we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So we see in God's command to man, 
He not only commands, he provides Christ, our holy Savior, to save us, to rescue us. And it is only through our being firmly grounded and secure in Christ that we are then declared righteous. We have that righteousness imputed to our account. It is reckoned. It is fully accounted. Never to be taken back. Never to be discounted. Never to be kind of blended or diluted by any way. But that is our entry to him. Any questions? Anything so far? Okay. Our continuing our continuation in holiness. I want to look at two passages here. Someone please look up Leviticus twenty twenty six, and someone else Hebrews twelve fourteen. Leviticus twenty twenty six, and Hebrews twelve fourteen. Leviticus, Greg, you got it. Amen. We are to be holy unto him. The Lord alone is holy, and he has set us apart from the peoples to be his. And now in Hebrews 12, get up. Get up. Strive for peace for everyone, with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Amen. There is the key verse. Pursue peace with all men, and the holiness or the sanctification Listen, without which no one will see the Lord. There's a lot of weight in those few words, but there's a lot of hope. And we see from these that holiness, our sanctification, is not an option for the believer in God. This is not an optional, well, I'll get to it down the road. I'll have that second wave of spiritual renewal or whatever. No, our holiness, our sanctification is not an option. It's mandatory. Does our salvation ultimately depend to some degree on our attaining some level of holiness? No. Why not? <clears throat> right? That's true. And I'm going to read Isaiah 64, 6 to to line up with what you're saying. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We can never in in and of ourselves merit salvation through any personal holiness. There's nothing we can do. All of our deeds, all of our attempts at righteousness to make ourselves holy, they're what? What does Isaiah call them? filthy rags they're polluted they're full of our imperfections even one i couldn't find who it was from but an old i think it was a puritan said even our tears and repentance need to be washed by the blood of the lamb but hang with me here romans five nineteen. for as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners Even so, through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. Yes, Christ is our only means of holiness, our only means of salvation. And for Christ, who also died for sins once for all, right, 1 Peter, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, 
having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It is only through the obedience and righteousness of Christ on our behalf, through what we see here as Christ, both his active and his passive obedience, right? What is his active obedience? He obeyed the law. He was born under the law, fulfilled the law, did everything to please his father. And what is his passive obedience? Crucifixion, his death on the cross. Where he alone is the only foundation and source of our righteousness and our holiness before God by faith. This was Christ's holiness. This was, as I said earlier, his pleasure and joy to do all that the Father had commanded him to fulfill all that had been given him to do and doing it to please the Father. As he said in John, I always do the things. I always do the things. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. But turn over to Hebrews 10, 9 to 10. Someone want to read that. Hebrews 10, 9 to 10. Jonathan, thank you, brother. Amen. Christ's perfect accomplishment of God's will is the only source of our holiness in him. So we have both a holiness that we have received through salvation in Christ before God, but we are still called to a holiness that we are to strive after, to synergistically, as I said, work after, and trembling in the Spirit's help by faith. And those two aspects of holiness complement each other. For our salvation is a salvation to holiness. And we're also to take seriously the necessity of personal and practical holiness. Because it says it's faith that works. The faith of the demons, they believe, all they do is shudder. Our salvation, our faith in Christ is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Energized, obviously, yes, by the Spirit and the full counsel of God's Word in order to live a holy life. But remember, we're going to get to it, Lord willing, in First Thessalonians. God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but for what? And sanctification and holiness. We are called to be holy and blameless in His sight. And if we choose to continue in sin to presumptively sin, to willingly sin, is to go contrary to God's very purpose in our lives. Christianity is not somehow adding God to carry on and to our lives and then, then carry on as we were before to continue in sin. Now, realize that holiness is not a necessary as a condition of salvation. That would be salvation by works, right? But it's a very real part of salvation received by faith in Christ. And it is with the Spirit 
of Christ in us that creates within us saving faith and also that desire for holiness. It may at first just be a small spark. It may not be a full-blown flame. It varies person to person by the will of the Father, the work of the Father in that person. But that spark should grow into a flame. There should be an ever-progressing growth in holiness and sanctification because what does Paul say also in Thessalonians? He calls us to what? Excel still more, to grow in love, to grow up and mature in Christ. That's not a plateaued Christianity. And the one who says he abides in him, 1 John 2, 6, ought himself to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. If we are ever pursuing the Father by faith, going to him in prayer, seeking his counsels, his instructions, his wisdom from his word, humbled enough to be disciplined, to be corrected, to be purified, we will walk in the same manner as Christ because our hearts will be transformed to please him, to enjoy him, to love him, to worship him. And that's going to overflow into everyone around us, enemies as well as brothers and sisters. Amen. J.C. Ryle said, I doubt indeed whether we have any warrant for saying that a man can possibly be converted without being consecrated to God. More consecrated he doubtless can be and will be as his grace increases. But if he was not consecrated to God at the very day he was converted and born again, I do not know what conversion means. Amen? So the fifth and final point are consequences. I was trying to be alliterative here, so these are good consequences of salvific holiness. Who is it that can live and have fellowship with God? Simple question. What does David say? Oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? The answer is, walks in integrity, works righteousness, speaks truth from his heart, Psalm 15. Fundamentally and of absolute necessity, he who is now made holy in Christ is given such many precious means of grace to fellowship with Christ, to know him, to take full advantage of. And he wants us to. He desires us to. What does it say? Ask, seek, and knock for those things from the Spirit. He is the one that brings the power to reveal and to grant understanding and to grant that enjoyment and to grant such pleasures. Not worldly temporal pleasures, but true happiness within the soul. And we'll find that as we encounter the holiness of God's in these mean, in this means many means of communion, that our self-deception will be challenged. 
the sanctifying work of the Word of God will show us just how easily we misread our own spiritual, true spiritual condition, or how superficially we thought about our relationship with God, and how easy it is for us to compare ourselves to one another in our own estimation and somehow give ourselves a passing grade. It keeps us in the light and the life of God so that we judge ourselves rightly by his standard. And in order to satisfy that new desire to live in the realm of the Spirit, we must do what? How do we continue to to satisfy, fill our minds with his word, in prayer, in communion with him, to be asking, make me holy. Father, sanctify me by your word. Those are Christ's words. Sanctify them, Father, by your word. Your word is truth. It will do the work. Be relentless at our knocking, our asking, our seeking for these things. In our fellowship with a high and holy God, we can't attempt to have private closets in our hearts where we harbor secret sins. Psalm 66, 18 says, If we continue to cherish and not confess and repent of some secret sin, if we love it and justify it, this is my paraphrase, and justify it in some way so as not to part with it, God will not hear our prayers. No matter how fervent, no matter how many, no matter how intense, secret sins will not be allowed to continue. And if we cannot rightly and humbly consider the holy and powerful love demonstrated to us on the cross of Christ so that we would rather hold on to what grieves him and separates us from him, then we're not pursuing or walking in holiness. Think of your first love. Revelation, the letter to Ephesians. Think of that first love in Christ. Return to him. Do the works of it first. Remember from where you have fallen. Spend time with the lover and keeper of your soul in fellowship with him. We can't achieve sinless perfection in this life, and neither is it required. But, this is a, a big conjunction, we should have the mindset of sinless pursuit. As we abide in Christ, we are to pursue the holiness in Christ as a way in everyday life, not just for here today, three or four or five hours, not on Monday nights, not on Wednesday nights, not on Friday nights, not on Saturdays when you evangelize. Oh God, I thank you for the new day and the mercies you've already bestowed upon me. That's our heart cry. Meditate on John 15 and you'll see the glorious beautiful aspects of abiding in Christ. Next, we'll have a well-being and care for our soul. <clears throat> Hebrews 12:6. For those whom the Lord loves, he what? He disciplines us. And he scourges every son whom he receives. I was talking to brother about this beforehand. This is kind of a, I say this reverently, spiritual, what do we call it? Schizophrenia. Schizophrenia. (laughs) 
there's great love found in the discipline of the father. What father does not love his own child that he doesn't discipline him? And our fathers were imperfect, but they demonstrated their love to us by disciplining us, correcting us, keeping us away from evil, from danger, from harm. How much greater is the holy discipline of our heavenly father to us? And if we persist in disobedience, it only furthers our need for discipline. Unless we take heed to ourselves and our sin, we will share in the same soul suffering that David shared as we read in, in, in earlier section, but also in Psalm 32, when he kept silent about his sin, his body wasted away, groaning all day long. His pillow, his bed was filled with tears. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon him. And all of his vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. The extent or degree of the sin is not a determining factor here. It goes back to seeing the sinfulness of sin, of any sin, because we have been infiltrated with its nature and all of its manifestations are in need to be mortified. And that's what God has provided to us to do. Next, we're able to effectively... (laughs) Yeah, I do. Thank you. (laughs) We're enabled to effectively serve. Where does a majority of our sanctification come into play? Right here. Right here. Amen. I say amen to that. That's not, that's not a downplay on any, in any means. 2 Timothy 2, 21, Paul says, If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. When we all call on the Lord from a pure heart, how glorious is our fellowship. Not just to be around each other and encourage one another, that's wonderful, but to hallow the name of God because he is the one that has done it and to worship him together. What a joyful experience. And our holiness and usefulness in the Lord's kingdom broadly and in the local church is closely linked together within us. We're not going to be useful if our holiness is lacking, is damaged, is darkened by sin. If we're harboring sin and we know we knowingly live in, in an unholy way, that's when we're going to be striving in the flesh to do works. That's when we're going to be worried about what others think and what they see us do and how good we are and what an impression we make, and try to garner applause and praise. But if we're in communion with the Spirit, our service is going to be rightly empowered, giving preference to one another, honoring one another. And finally, gloriously, this is where we get our assurance of salvation. Excuse my writing. I'm getting pretty excited here. This is great. 
as those being in Christ and a new creation in him, our faith in him will, it must, what? Grow, bear fruit, John 15. And a great aspect of this fruit is our assurance in him and his salvific work on our behalf. 1 John 3, 2-3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him does what? Purifies himself because he is pure. This is a great basis for a Christian's confidence and joy right here. And the aim in this is to show us that biblical doctrine always carries with it moral implications. If what John says is true, that seeing Christ Jesus will make us like him, then the conditional requirement is that we should be morally fit to come into his presence. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? See God. John is not speaking of outward spotlessness, but a moral purity of heart that is free from the dominion and ongoing manifestations of sin. Praise God. Let me ask you these weighty questions before we go. Is there evidence of practical holiness in your life? Do you honestly desire and strive after holiness? Do we grieve over the lack of it and earnestly seek the Lord's help to be holy? My prayer, may we as Christ have a greater heart desire and a resolve to please the Father, to do his will, to be holy, that his name be glorified. I leave you with one final scripture, 1 Peter 1. Active words here, imperative words. 13 to 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, there again the obedience, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Amen. Any questions? Yes, brother.